Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter thing, later things yet to be among those who come after. The grass withers and the flowers fall. From Matthew sixteen twenty one through 28. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Will you... Pray with me, please. You know our frame. You know that we are dust. But as a father pities his young child, We come in confidence that perhaps, by chance, by your mercy, that you would pity us. Like those ancient Assyrians in Nineveh of long ago who know neither their left hand from their right, we also get really confused. Our understanding gets cattywampus. Our pursuits wear us down and leave us unfulfilled. And we need to know, and we need your help with, life under the sun. 
So will you please be eager to enhance our understanding? Will you please be appalled at how little we know so that you might remedy it in love so that we can be people who boast in you all day long? Oh, come, be the lifter of our heads. Oh, come, turn our darkness into light. Oh, come, keep our lamps burning, even with these words, Holy Spirit. We invite you now. Amen. We're starting a new series on the book of Ecclesiastes, a book that I had this great idea about preaching, and I told it to Corby, and then I started reading more and learning more, and then I thought, what, oh what, oh what have I done? But, my hope, my consolation and sorrow is this, that the Apostle Paul has assured us, as we eavesdrop on his conversation to Timothy, that all of Scripture is God-breathed and useful for correcting and training and making muscle-bound the man and woman and child of God so that they can act righteously in the world. And so we're holding God to that today with joyful expectation that there are things we need to know in this book of, of Ecclesiastes This assemblage, which is what Ecclesiastes means, ecclesia, you may have heard, is the church, the assembly, and this is a compilation, an assemblage of wisdom for living skillfully, for how we're to live in this bad business in a world that's subject to decay. How do we live? And one of the things that's hopeful to me, or there's actually a lot of hope, I'm kind of playing up the non-hope. It's hopeful because there's a lot of resonant things in this book that we need to know. And it starts from the very beginning with a kind of sucker punch, with a kind of pronouncement that catches our attention as it's meant to. Vanity of vanity, says the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's his version of inconceivable. (laughs) Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And you'll notice, those of you who are ESV readers, we've chosen the ESV today because it doesn't translate that word vanity, meaningless, which is how the NIV does. But the more I read and the more I talk to our resident Old Testament scholar, Professor Jones, I realize that that's a problematic translation, that, that the, the assembler here, the preacher, the teacher, Kehelet, we could say, since we're close. He wasn't like some existential French philosopher who went off to college and got his head stuck in a different frame of mind. And he came home and sat in the backyard and started reading poetry and playing a lot of guitar and just staring off into space. He's not like someone who saw through everything and says, 
Everything, nothing counts, nothing matters, nothing matters at all. Of course, that's not exactly at all what he thinks. But he does think something because he says this is a lot. All is hebel. That's the transliterated Hebrew word that he keeps saying. That's translated here as vanity. H-E-B-E-L. Someone told me after the last service that they were at a church where the pastor preached a sermon called, What in the Hebel is going on? That would have made like Jimmy Kimmel's church marquee, or Jay Leno's, or Johnny Carson's, probably Johnny Carson. But there's this recognition that there's something about life under the sun that as we experience people who don't, after all, have very much control in the world and who live every day of their lives, whether we're cognizant of it or not, with this great unopened bill that's just sitting there on the counter of our lives. This bill that says your life will end. And that hangs like a shadow over everything we do. And we can try to pretend it's not there, We can come up with, as some author says, these scarecrows in our lives to to frighten away reality. If we get pretty enough, we get enough money, if we can do things perfectly enough, if we can get in the right colleges, we can get enough friends, we can get the right kind of house, we can achieve the right kind of experiences, something or another, if we can go to enough concerts, we can have scarecrows that will frighten away the reality that lives there. But the, the author of Ecclesiastes wants to say, No, I'm not going to let you do it. I'm going to show you how you might live in a world where it's easy to say vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Because this word vanity can mean worthless, doesn't work, ineffectual. It can mean like a vapor, like a mist. Like James says, what is your life? Your life is a mist. We just said it, all men are like grass. The grass withers and the flowers fade. That's what happens to your life. But the word of our God stands forever. Some of you watch The Office. There's in The Office, it's a television show. For those of you who have just come onto the planet. And in it, These people work at Dunder Mifflin, which is a paper company, which is a very strategic industry to be in in our times. And that gets played on a lot. And they make a commercial, and it's a touching commercial about how they're better than the big box stores and how you should do your business there and how we're a big family. And they close with this tagline that may as well be the tagline of Ecclesiastes. Dunder Mifflin, limitless paper in a paperless world. (laughs) It's very reassuring to me that you got that. I didn't have to say it again. Limitless paper in a paperless world. The whole show. The life under the sun of the show is these people showing up to an office every day and trying to figure out how to bide their time as they do something that doesn't seem to matter at all. They're They're not sure of the worth of it. When Ryan Howard, the temp, gets made a permanent employee, he says to the camera, this grainy, dismal thing, he says, now, at my 10-year reunion, when they say, what are you doing? I'll be able to say, I am a junior salesman 
at a mid-sized regional paper company. That'll show them. The whole show is a mockery. And it's reckoning with what all of us feel like. Having limitless paper in a paperless world. Are we up to something that's going to matter at all? Is what we do every day worth anything? Or are we like those dogs that you meet if you live out here every second of your day of driving who are incessantly chasing cars? And you've wondered, as the cliche goes, what are they going to do should they catch one? They haven't thought that through. They just chase and they just chase. And that's what the author of Ecclesiastes says, that we're people who are prone to chasing after the wind, that all our toil, what does it get us, he says. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That's the big question of the book. What gain is it? What value? Is what we're doing worthless? Is, is anything we do going to stand the test of time? This is a question that high school students raise. They, maybe not like this. But when you say, I can't remember when the war of 1812 was. Why am I supposed to remember that? That's a joke. You should, get that. you should be able to remember when the war of 1812 was. When you've wondered, why do we have to learn about Pythagoras? What good is it going to be to me later to learn how to conjugate a Latin verb? You wonder, what's the point? Is there a point? You're asking the same question that Ecclesiastes asks. If you've, if you've wondered as you make the bed in the morning, I mean, I assume there's like 6% of people in here to do that. If you make the bed and you think, what am I doing this? Isn't this going to need to happen again tomorrow? And then the day after that? Or you feel triumphant after you've made supper and provided supper for your family and then you, then you sink into despair and realize, well, there's still dishes. And, happy for you, people eat three times a day. But it's only seven days a week and all of those days just keep going in succession. Congratulations. You cook, and you clean, and you wash, and you prepare, and then you do it all over again, and you wonder, what does one gain from all the toil with which they toil? Delbert, in one of Wendell Berry's stories, says, I have started out with darn near nothing. And through hard work, I have multiplied the effort until I'm going to end up with darn near what I started with. I started out with nothing, and through hard work, I have multiplied my labors until I'm going to end up with darn near what I started with. I started with nothing, I'm going to end up with nothing. That's what it looks like, and I've worked my whole life. So what do we do about that? That's the question that demands a response. And that's a question that people come up with answers to all the time. But a lot of their answers are scarecrows meant to frighten off reality. A lot of their answers are self-imposed meaning that isn't going to stand. It isn't going to last. It isn't going to work. 
one thing they do is they just fail to accept their own death. And therefore, they don't think about it in, in any way. He says this, a generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, and then it goes down, and then it hastens to the place where it rises. The sun is in this, this cycle. It dies at night, in a sense, and then it resurrects again, and it does this over and over with repetition. The wind goes round and around, as Scott Jones said, like a hamster wheel or you who hate being on a treadmill. Ugh, you run on a treadmill? You just run and you're not going anywhere. Ecclesiastes would say, correct. That's what it's like. But if you don't think about ever the fact that you're going to die, that these things are going to come to a close, you're going to furiously give yourself to things that may have no bearing. You're going to attach your heart to things that may not be able to withstand the weight of your heart's wanting. And so you need to realize that baked into creation is this this notion that the sun goes down and then it comes up. You're going to go down into the grave and then those who are in Christ will resurrect. And so it's worth remembering that you have to deal with your own death. You have to think about that. One author has says that, that the, looking at Ecclesiastes, this is a book that tells us consider, consider the end and live backwards. What do you want people to say at your funeral? David Brooks wrote not too long ago about the difference between eulogy virtues and resume virtues. Resume virtues are those things you do to make people impressed with you. That enhance your likelihood of getting a right job, of getting the right favor, of getting in the right schools. These are the things we do, and then you feel dirty about them, because you're just doing them just to make somebody think something about you that may or may not be true. But eulogy virtues are the kinds of things at the end of your life that someone would say, Boy, they sure did love. They sure were grateful. They sure were generous. They're the kinds of things that no one's going to pay you for. And the kinds of things that you may not get any fame for. If you're going to wrestle with the vanity of the world, you're going to have to, you're going to, have to reckon with your own death. That things are going to come to a close and you're going to have to live backwards from that. He then says this, he would, he would remind us that there's nothing gained in novelty. All the streams run to the sea, but the sea's not full, to the place where the streams flow, and there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. I says novelty, right now I mean to say You're dealing with a situation where never enough is going to be routine for you. It's baked into the creation. He says, look at this. You have a stream. It goes into the ocean. You would think at some point the ocean would fill up, but no, it doesn't. It goes into the ocean, the water evaporates, and it comes back into a stream, and the stream goes in the ocean, and it's never full. And just like that creation, so your eyes. 
You can look and look and look, and your eyes never get full. You can hear and hear and hear, and it never satisfies you. <coughs> One of the hard parts about the routine of our lives, you've hit this point, some of you. You get to a point maybe where you, where you look at your life and you say, is this it? So this is what you do? Like, you wake up in the morning, and you, you feed the ingrates, and then, just kidding. That's what it feels like when small children are really young. You, you start attending to demands that are the same exact demands as they were when you went to bed and through the night. And then you go to this job where you work with these same people and it seems like we're having... Didn't we have the same conversation yesterday? And you're doing the same sorts of things only to come home to the ingrates? And you just do that day after day? That's extra cynical. But you find yourself going, Oh! What is there to look forward to? So you start dreaming about maybe another kind of life. Any kind of life would be better than the kind of life that you have now. It's endemic. Except we don't let ourselves interrogate ourselves about it. It doesn't always occur to us to to ask ourselves, to be suspicious of this sense that surely someplace I'm not is better than the place I am. Surely the person I'm with, there's got to be somebody better Surely, the house I'm in, there's got to be a better house. Surely, there's got to be a better job. There's always somewhere better, somewhere more, something out there that I could get that would be better. And then, I would say, "Ah, enough. I've got enough. Now I can rest. Now I can ah, ease into the lazy boy of my life. But those of you who've been around a while realize, after you've jumped around jobs and jumped around houses and jumped around friends and jumped around cars, you realize it doesn't, it doesn't really work so well at all. You start dreaming. Maybe a vacation. Oh, yeah, we got a vacation coming up. What is it, January? It's in just August. It's just seven months. And you start daydreaming about this vacation, how wonderful it's going to be. You nourish yourself a little bit on this trip that's coming. Oh, that'll feel, that'll, that'll do the trick. And then, you, and then you get there, and you're at the beach, and you realize, like, wait, why did my dream involve sand? <laughs> like, how can anything good happen on sand? Like, it's sand. And uh, that's why you don't build houses on it, and that's why you shouldn't be at it. I am in the minority, I know. My family disagrees with me. But you get there, and even if you start to enjoy it, you start to go... Ah, yes, my life is, a, is now a, a, a Corona commercial. But before you know it, it's Friday again, and you're weeping because it was so fast, and you're having to gather up all your things, the things that multiplied somehow while you're on vacation, you're shoving them in a car that got smaller. And you think to yourself, wait a second, it didn't work. I thought it was going to work. I thought it was going to fix something. Because there's things we hope for, there's things we expect from things we can get, from acclaims that we can achieve, from performances that we can stun people with, from vacations that we can look after, from that new house that we can get, 
where we think that's going to do the trick. That's going to be the fix. And time and time again we say, it doesn't work. That's what Hebel is. That's what vanity is. It doesn't work. It doesn't fix. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. So you've got to reckon with your own death. You have to realize that this problem of never enough is going to afflict you. It's baked into the world. The grave itself says never enough. It clamors and it craves and it wants our whole world, the entropic principle, it wants everything to decay, everything to be lost. You're fighting against that all the time. You're creatures of desire and you're going to have to live with desires that may not get fully filled in life under the sun. That doesn't mean your appetite won't get wetted. That doesn't mean that there aren't hopes. Because you know that throughout the New Testament, they wonder the same thing. That people wonder, that you wonder. They wonder about, is what I'm doing in vain? Is what I do matter? Is what I do worthless? (coughs) The Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians that he wants to make sure they remember his gospel so that they don't believe in vain. That their, their belief isn't empty, that it's not worthless, it's not in, unproductive. That it's going to mean something, it's going to count for something. He says to the Galatians, when he's told them, hey, you know that you can live in a way where you're not constantly justifying your own existence? Where you're not walking out into the world every day trying to prove yourself by how good you can be? or how you can keep all the rules, or how you can fulfill all the demands of everybody around you in the hopes that if I can be good enough, then everybody will accept me. If I can be pretty enough, if I can be righteous enough, God will like me. He said, I've shown you through the work of Christ that you can be emancipated from all of that. You can be set free, and you're going back to the old way of thinking. And Paul says, I fear for you that I have wasted my effort on you. People fear that they've wasted their efforts. You fear when you work that you're wasting your efforts. You fear with these sacrifices you make or if you ponder sacrifices, am I wasting my effort? Is this all in vain? Is this all for no reason? We're going to find the end to that story in just a second. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. You've got to take your death into consideration. You've got to realize that never enough is going to be baked into your life. It's baked into the world. And that there's nothing really gained from novelty because there is no real novelty. Some of us live in constant pursuit of, no, of newness. The newest music, the newest shirt, the newest car, the newest app, the newest technology... 
And the author would say, you know, none of this stuff is actually very new. And if you think that you're on the cutting edge of something, this is it. You're going to be sorely disappointed to realize that everything that's come up, of course there's new technologies, but the concepts, the struggles that humans have, they're all the same over and over again. And what's going to happen is, unfortunately, in a hundred years, nobody will know anybody in this room ever existed. None of the people living will probably not remember you. Congratulations. Isn't that encouraging? You're spending yourself and nobody in here is going to remember you. That's good. That's good. Except that there is a, a fact to address as we go today. There's a fact to address For people under the constraints of vanity, vanity, all is vanity. What does it gain a man for all the toil with which he toils? Is that we're told that Jesus Christ, God himself, stepped into the treadmill of our existence. That he stepped into the vanity of vanities and that his work was accepted. That his righteousness on our behalf and his mingling his tears with ours and his subjecting himself to all the miseries of this life, to all the cold showers and all the headaches and all the allergies, to all the aching backs and all the misunderstandings and all the alienations and all the dashed expectation. He confronted all of that and we're told that he tasted death that hangs like a shadow over everyone. He tasted death for everyone, we're told. The author of Ecclesiastes does not seem aware yet by progressive revelation. He doesn't seem aware yet of the, of the resurrection and life fully in the world to come, though he does say God has planted eternity in the hearts of men. There is another kind of way of thinking that has to Im- your thinking if you're going to live in the vanity of things if you're not going to be worn out by the wearisomeness of things and it means you're going to have to live not by mere human reasons you know the apostle Paul says if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for mere human reasons what was I thinking and Jesus tells Peter you don't have in mind the things of God but human things There's this recognition that in life under the sun, we can easily start to think like everybody else, to value what they value. But we're told that God finds what we highly value detestable. And what he values is what matters. And so we're told that Jesus enters in, and he takes on the vanity of things. He enters into the confusion, and he says, by tasting death for everyone, now death has been changed to a portal. And the New Testament writers think that means that all your work cannot be in vain now. Paul says, give yourselves fully to your work in the Lord because you know that nothing you do in the Lord will be in vain. None of it will be worthless. No act of love will be worthless. 
No act of service as you go out as provident agents, agents of providence, recognizing you've been assigned to your place, to your school, to your home, to your work. You've been assigned there. You've been placed there by the one who's propped himself up against the ruin of the world and who means to bring about life in the world to come, who wants to make the creation that is subject to futility. He wants to make it all new. He's offered and placed you there. And as you receive your life and say, not, why can't I get a better life? But Lord, why have you given me this life? How may I live it out for you? You find some of the vanity dissipating. You find some renewal in the weariness of it. And brothers Karamazov, the end we hear this. I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for. That all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. The book of Ecclesiastes is about all the humiliating human contradictions. And the scriptures say they will vanish like a pitiful mirage. Something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but also to justify all that has happened. Something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for every heart. The Apostle Paul thinks if you get a hold of that notion that something's going to come to pass that will be enough. It will suffice. It will be sufficient for every heart. Something so precious will come to pass brought in by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's going to make up for all that has happened. You realize that's coming. You can be renewed day by day even when you're wasting away and wondering, does my life matter? Something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts. This is the promise of the God who said, what would it profit you to achieve all your dreams and to lose your soul in the bargain? What would it profit you to live like everyone else and to achieve everything you dreamed of getting And at the end, find that it wasn't enough, that you weren't remembered, that it was all for naught. He says, I would spare you from that. I would introduce you to something, to someone so precious that he will suffice for every human heart. He has promised that apart from him, your life will be utter vanity unproductive, ineffective, wasted. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But abide in me, and I in you, and fruit will come. The fruits of affection, the fruits of gratitude, the fruits of ability to be content, the fruits of welcoming others into a hope of a preciousness that's going to suffice for every heart. Oh, let us, in these vain days of our lives, in all their wearinesses, 
come to him who endured them for us and offers us a preciousness that will suffice for every heart. Amen.